Amen. I said, God wants to do something great in this place today. I hope and pray we never become a church where we think just going to church is, is enough. I pray that we realize we're here today. Uh, we can fellowship with God by ourselves and our own prayer closet that we ought to shut the door. But when we come to church, we are fellowshipping with the presence of God and his people. And God wants to do something special in that place. Seven times in the book of Revelation, and you know what the number seven is, it's the number of perfection. Seven times the Lord says to John, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So there are individual words that we get from God and from his word. In fact, in those seven uh, occurrences, it's also said unto the angel of the church at Ephesus and unto the angel at the church of Smyrna and unto the angel of the church of Philadelphia. So there was a person that had a word from God, but then God closed it out by saying, go to church because I got something not only to say to the angel of that church, I've got something to say to that church. If you have an ear, you ought to hear what the Spirit says to the church. You need to be at church to hear that. I said you need to be at church to hear that. It doesn't matter if God talks to you every day and says he ought to talk to you every day. But you need to come and hear what God is saying to this church. Well, I love that. Man, that's awesome. Thank you, Pastor. In fact, I made up my mind. I came to this pulpit today. If you don't amen me, I'm going to amen myself. Amen, Pastor. Preach it, Pastor. That's awesome. I love that, Pastor. I need that, Pastor. Somebody say amen. Amen. I'll try to close, too, from this point out. No, I'm teasing you. What an honor to be with all of you great people. I believe God wants to speak to all of us today. Amen. I'm turning today to the book of Acts. That's a great chapter, a great book. We're going to read a great chapter in the book of Acts as well. Man, shock, shock. We come to an apostolic church and take our text out of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And let me say before we go forward, Jesus had already told them that the Spirit in John 3 was like wind. Okay, so this is not an accident. You say, well, why doesn't wind come all the time? Well, wind doesn't come all the time because he's given them signs at the initial outpouring of the Spirit that they're already preconditioned to receive. He said, just as the wind blows through the trees and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, so is the Spirit. So they already know that wind's going to blow. So, day of Pentecost, there came a sound of wind. Well, he told them. Verse 3, and there appeared in them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. No, because Jesus is showing them this is what he was talking about when he was talking about the Spirit. For he had said, John truly baptized you with water. <laughs> or John said, he that, uh, I truly baptize you with water, but he that cometh after me shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. So wind and fire are no accidents. 
It sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, confused because of what was happening. We heard them speaking in tongues. Somebody say amen. amen. Tongues has a way of confusing people. Or seven, and they were all amazed. Not only were they confused, they were amazed. They marveled, saying one to another, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And then he goes on to mention all the nations. I'm going to skip that part and skip down to verse 12. And they were all amazed and were in doubt. They began to doubt. Do you know there are people that still doubt the outpouring of the Holy Ghost? You recognize that. They say a myriad of things. They say, well, it was just for the book of Acts church. Or they say, well, I prayed and I didn't get it, so that means it's not real. Discounting the millions of people that are, are what, uh, you can Google it yourself. Just Google it, the number of Christians who speak with tongues. You'll be shocked. And you're telling me just because you didn't speak in tongues that, that it's not real. Well, what are, anybody hearing what I'm saying? There are people still today that doubt this experience, saying one to another, what meaneth this? We don't know what it means. Others mocked. You do realize there are people still mocking the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. There are people who say it's of the devil. Anybody hearing what I'm saying? They're they're mocking. They said these men are full of new wine. These are crazy people. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. I won't read the rest of his sermon, but he preaches for a little while there. And then the writer says, with many other words, did he exhort. So his, his sermon was pretty long, I assume. But we're going to skip most of his sermon. We're going to skip down to verse 37. He finishes his, I'm sorry, verse 36. He finishes his sermon. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now he's talking to Jews and he said, God has made that same Jesus. You know what Lord is? That's Jehovah. That, that's, and, and Christ is Messiah or Savior. He's made him both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, notice all these doubters, all these mockers, all these amazed folks, when they heard his message, they were pricked in their heart. One translation said it's one word picture is like horses stamping on the ground. It just was like a thunder. They were pricked in their conscience and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're not mocking anymore. They're not confused anymore. They're not doubting anymore. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Praise God. For the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Somebody say, thank you, Lord, for your word. Somebody say, Lord, I believe your word. Somebody say, Lord, your word is forever settled. Somebody say, Lord, you don't change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
If you did it then, you can do it now. If you did it then, you can still do it now. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, come on, let faith rise in this building right now. God, I praise you. We give God praise for his word. We give God praise for his word today. I believe it's gonna do its work. Somebody say amen. amen. And with that, I'll let you be seated. I'll say this today before, uh, obviously you recognize, usually when I preach, I'll, I'll give you the title of this sermon later because I know you'll, if I give you the title, you'll, you'll think you know what the message is and you'll go to sleep. So stay with me today. Somebody say amen. Uh, an amazing passage in what I read today, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost is found in that 37th verse. And it says this, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? Something changed their minds and something changed their hearts. When we begin in the book of Acts with that experience, we don't find them saying, that we don't find them in a convicted position. We don't find them saying, uh, what we need this, we need whatever you've got, we need, what do we do to get it? We find that they're doubting, they're amazed, they're confused, they're mocking, but something convicts their heart. Something drives them to a place where they say, I need God and I need him desperately. Somewhere they got to a place where they weren't concerned about their, Judah, uh, their, their uh, Judaism and, and their faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Somewhere they got to the place where going to the synagogue every day and having the Passover and all that stuff, they realized there's more for me in God. Somewhere they realize what I've been doing as a religious function is not doing it anymore. I need what these people have. Oh, I wish somebody said, amen, pastor. I need what these people have because just going to church isn't going to get it done. Just saying I'm apostolic isn't going to get it done. Just going into a denomination and think they're going to be an answer is not going to get it done. I need the outpouring of the Holy Ghost to have victory. I want to walk in the Spirit. I've got to have the Spirit if I'm going to walk in the Spirit. I'll fulfill the lust of the flesh if I don't have the Spirit. I've got to have the Spirit. In fact, Jesus said, if you don't have the Spirit, how can, the, how can you be raised? He that hath the Spirit will be raised by that Spirit. I want to tell you, I don't know how much longer I have, but if they plant me in this ground, if I've got the Spirit of Christ in me, I'm not staying there. I don't know who's going to bring you out of the grave, but I'm telling you the Holy Ghost is going to bring me out of this ground. Oh, come on, give the Lord a hand clap of praise today. I need the Holy Ghost. I need it every day. I, I'm sorry. I, I need to apologize to, I, I guess, I want to do this in the right spirit, but I don't, want to be, I don't want to seem arrogant in any way. But I'm telling you, you should have caught me a long time before now to tell me, to convince me that this is not real. You should have grabbed me a long time ago if you're going to convince me that's just for the pages for me to read. In fact, I read our nation's history and it's recorded on pages for me to read. But if I don't believe it and act on it, it's just a story. 
If I don't accept it for me, all these men have died in vain. If I live in bondage, the word says I'm free, but I've got to act on it. Somebody say amen. I'm thankful for the night the Lord baptized me with the Holy Ghost. Let me just tell you, I was standing in baptistry water and it was me and my mother and my pastor and his big old hand was on my head and I came out of that water and I began to try to say what I'd always said when I was praying, oh, I love you, Jesus. Lord, I want to give you my, I started trying to say that stuff and my tongue got so messed up, I thought for a minute I was, uh, you know, it was almost like I was standing beside myself. I heard words I couldn't understand, but I tell you, it was more than what I heard heard it was what I felt (laughs) it felt like electricity going through my body and I stood there trembling in that water I didn't care what time it was oh I've told you before I went home that night my sister looked different and you know God got a hold of a 12 year old boy who has an older sister if he goes home and his sister looks different Uh Uh-oh. Well, anyway, these men said, men and brethren, they were pricked in their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? This is the response. It's all that could be hoped for. It is a response. I'm praying there's a response in this room today. Their primary reaction was not joy that God had given Israel a Messiah. They Because when you read Peter's message, he's preaching about Jesus. Somebody say amen. Amen. And their response is not joy. The Bible says they are pricked in their hearts. They are feeling remorse. They are feeling sorry. They feel badly. Oh, God, help me. They are feeling badly. There's a sense of conviction that has gripped them. I want to say this right here at the outset of this sermon. I want a church where there's conviction that operates in a service. I want people that walk in that are bound to feel like, wait a minute, I don't have to leave here bound anymore. I want people walking here that are bound by sin to say, you know what? I don't have to live this way the rest of my life. Conviction. Conviction. These people felt remorse. We have entered an interesting time in religion. You can go online. You can find it where uh, they'll set up uh, pools out in the park. And and they'll hand out t-shirts to everybody that got baptized. Baptism is very important. But something has to come before you're baptized or all you did was get wet. We're not going to have a swimming party and call it a baptism. We're going to baptize people that have died. And I get concerned when I think I'm baptizing somebody that hadn't quite died yet. (laughs) These people experienced, it was like the gospel knocked the breath out of them. There was remorse. There was conviction. And they said, what shall we do? And in response to that, Peter gives them two commands. If I say two commands. It's the two things we can do. Everybody say two commands. He said you are to repent and you are to be baptized. With those commands come two promises. Forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
You do the two things you're supposed to do and God will do the two things only he can do. You repent, he'll forgive your sins. You're baptized, he'll fill you with the Holy Ghost. I believe that. I said, I believe that. I want to tell you today, it took me a while to get the Holy Ghost, so let me just say this to you. If you're saying, well, I got baptized, but I didn't have that experience you're talking about, let me encourage you to wait on the Lord, to seek the Lord. He may be found. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. Oh, let me hear an amen from the saints of God. Amen. Don't don't let don't let your labor in the Lord be in vain. Don't 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 say, "Well, I waited too long," or it just I guess it's not for me. No, say, "God, you said it's for me. You said if I'll repent and I'll be baptized, that you would forgive me and fill me with your Spirit." And then, following that, Peter says, "You know what? I want to tell you, folks. It's not just for you. There was a reassurance that was given to them. The promise was universal." He said, it's to you, your children, those that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They got Peter's point. They were guilty of rejecting, even crucifying the Messiah. Did you hear that? His whole message was, God sent you a Messiah. You took him, rejected him, and killed him. And the Bible says when they understood their incredible part of crucifying the Messiah, they were cut or pricked in their heart. They basically said in their minds, what Have we done to Jesus? What have we done to Jesus? What have we done to the Son of God? Well, you know what's important? If you're going to get to that point, you got to first know who Jesus is. Because if he's just another prophet, you're not going to get pricked in your heart because you get tired of hearing what somebody else says. But if you realize who Jesus is, (laughs) no, you're not hearing me. (laughs) If you realize who Jesus is, let let me say this. If you don't have a correct identity of who Jesus is, you don't feel the right conviction that you need to feel. Oh, my Lord. Amen, Pastor. Peter said, I want to tell you something. David is still in his tomb over there. But the the evidence that Jesus is God in the flesh is that his tomb is empty. God raised him up. I want to tell you, I'm glad I know who Jesus is. He's more than just a man. He's more than just a prophet. He is God with us, the hope of glory. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, I hurry. I got to first understand who Jesus is. And when you read Peter's sermon, that's the first part of his sermon, who Jesus is. He's preaching to Jews. And he, understand these Jews are very familiar with the scriptures I'm about to read. 
Deuteronomy 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They have been trained that way. They have been taught that. Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Jehovah shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What is that, Emmanuel? It's God with us. Somebody shouted, it's God. You got to know who Jesus is. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born and a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful. Oh, yes. That child's name shall be called Counselor. That child's name shall be called the Mighty God. Oh, and you better hear this. That child's name shall be Everlasting Father. Oh, yeah. Everlasting Father. Oh, give the Lord a good hand clap today. Everlasting Father. That child, his name is the Everlasting No, you didn't hear me. Isaiah said that child's name is Everlasting Father. You better know who Jesus is. He's more than your buddy. He's more than your pal. He's the God of heaven and earth come in flesh so that he might bleed and die for you and I and then raise us as he raised Christ from the dead. Isaiah 44, I am, the Lord says, I am the first and the last. Beside me, there is no God. This is Jehovah. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I'm the first and the last. And beside me, oh, wait a minute, all that, wait. Beside me, since you want to get technical and you think the right hand is on the right side of God, Wait, if God is a spirit and he feels every, everywhere, where is his right hand? He doesn't have a right hand. He's everywhere. So right hand doesn't mean standing on the right side. He, in Isaiah 40, 44, he said, hey, if you want to go there, he said, beside me, I don't see no God. There is no God beside me. Oh, I want to hear somebody. I'm glad I know who Jesus is. Oh, I said, I'm glad I know who Jesus is. Psalms 86 and 10. Thou art great and doest wondrous things. David said, thou art God alone. God alone. I don't know if you need the Hebrew to interpret that. That means there's no God beside him. Whoever he is, there ain't no other God. Now, Let's understand he's talking to Jews and we've got the writings in the New Testament of those Jewish believers. I want to tell you Jesus is the son of God and he was the great God come as a man. He was that one and only alone creative God wrapped in flesh come as a man. Oh. Oh, yes, that God that is alone. That's why the writer Isaiah said his name shall be Emmanuel. This is that alone God. This is that creator God wrapped in a baby. That's who Jesus is. I said that's who Jesus is. This is God in the flesh. Oh. 
Well, I got issues with that. Well, you got issues with Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. I believe that. Justified in the spirit. Seen of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world and received up in the glory. Who was received up in the glory? Don't whisper it, but I'm not sure. Who was received up in the glory? Jesus. Jesus. You got to be sure about your identification. You got to know who he is. The mystery of godliness is great, but God was manifest in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, to wit, that God was in Christ. Well, there you have it. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ. You got an issue with Paul, Colossians 2, 9. For in him, he's talking about Jesus. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. No, we don't have to go any further. That says everything God is, he put in a body. (laughs) Oh, hallelujah. (laughs) Well, I don't understand the Godhead. It's simple. All the Godhead is in a body. (laughs) And that body is Jesus Christ. Uh, Oh, I'm glad I know who he is. I said, I'm glad I know who he is. You got to know who he is or you'll never be convicted. For in him dwelleth all the food. I I like that. Philip said, he keeps talking about this. Uh, He keeps saying, he says, I, I and my father are one. He says it in John. I, I am the father. I and my father are one. You seen me? You see? Philip says, show us. Philip said, show us, Lord. And, and that we'll know. And he said, when you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the father. In Jesus was all the Godhead bodily present. And verse 10, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Did you hear that? There is no head of power other than the Godhead in a body, and that's Jesus. There is no power outside of that. Come on, I, I, don't, I don't see three of them up there, and one of them has this much power, and one of them has this much power. And No, it says Jesus is the head of all principality and power. I'm glad I know who Jesus is. I'm glad he's God in a body. Oh, yes, I got to know that. You know why it's important to know that? I'll tell you why. Because in John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus said, I said therefore unto you, this is the reason I said unto you, that ye shall die in your sins if you believe not that I am he. If you don't know who Jesus is, you don't understand the magnitude of your sin. You'll never be moved to conviction if you don't know who Jesus is. Now, I know it's not on that, on that slide that they've got up there real nice. But if you have your Bible, you'll notice that he up there is in italicized uh, font. You know what that just indicates in your Bible? That means that that's not in the original. That just means they've added that to give you a little clarity. 
You know what Jesus is saying? Somebody ought to read it without the he there. Jesus said that I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am. Oh. Now that rings a bell to every Jew, doesn't it? He told Moses, I am that I am sent you to Pharaoh. And Jesus said to those people, I am, and except you believe, I am. Oh, I'm glad I know who Jesus is. I said, I'm glad I know who Jesus is. Oh, yes, because I would die in my sins. I wouldn't be saved today if I didn't know who Jesus is. And the rest of this message is going to show you how that can happen. But before I get there, I love that old song. I started to uh, tell Sherry and, and Aaron and all those singers to just be ready. But I knew we'd have a praise break and you folks would take over and I would never be able to close. So let me just read the words. It's from that, we sing it every once in a while around here and the course goes, oh, let me tell you who Jesus is. He's the rock of all ages. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the heavenly father. He's the beginning and the end. But much more than this, my friend, he's the son of man and he's coming back again. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm glad I know who Jesus Hey. And just let me tell these praise singers and musicians, if you're getting a song halfway through my sermon, you're going to miss it. Because the second point is this. When he told them who Jesus was, when he told them the identity of that man they crucified, this is why you can't be saved unless you know who he is. Because you'll never understand the magnitude of your sin and disobedience if you think you're just uh, stealing candy in front of your grandpa. Well, he's a friend. Yes, he is a friend. Oh, he, he understands. Oh, yes, he does. He's touched with the feet. But you've got to understand who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. If you don't recognize how holy he is, and because of what he's went through he is now the judge of the quick and the dead you need to hear what I'm saying now you say oh he won't send anybody no he won't send anybody to hell but you're sinning against blood when you sin against Jesus Christ of all that he's done for you and you're going to do your own thing anyway yes if you don't know who he is you're in danger of losing out he convinced them what is it, Sister Heather, that gets people to come to church and they feel something and they say, oh, baptize? Yeah, I want to be baptized. And we baptize them and there's no godly sorrow and there's no life change. Are you hearing what I'm saying now? I'm going to tell you right now, the first, the first word to those people that were convicted was not baptism. The first word was repent. You will never repent until you know who Jesus is. Oh, wait a minute, I know who Jesus is and I'm going to leave here and get high and I don't care. Well, let me talk to you a little bit. Let, let me say that those people got to a point where they said, oh my goodness, if that's who he is, what have we done? 
They weren't saying this when they were beating him and spitting on him and slapping him on the face and saying, who slapped you if you're a prophet? But after Peter gets done, they prick their trim. Oh, my goodness, what have we done? I wish every sinner would feel that when they come to church. When they would recognize they're in the presence of the King of Kings, that they would say, oh my goodness, what have I been doing? Uh, See, fact of the matter is, I'm sitting in a room with a bunch of people who have no idea the magnitude of their sin. No, they're not convicted. They're not sorry. In fact, they think that Christianity is just go to church and try to do better. No, Peter didn't say go to church and do better and you'll be saved. He said repent. If you don't repent, you're going to perish. Is this okay? You're not going to hear this kind of preaching everywhere. Because they're just going to tell you, well, just come to church and go through a few classes and, and get on a church roll and you're saved. No, come shake the preacher's hand, quote after me a sinner's prayer. But if you don't repent... You are going to perish. And you will never repent until you understand what sin did to Jesus. Did you hear me? You'll never be convicted. Don't think, oh, well, I'll grow out of it. I'll do better one of these. No. Let me remind you. Peter first said, you need to know who Jesus is. Oh, I want conviction in this church. And if that's going to happen, we need to know that everything we do, we do it against Jesus. Or we do it for Jesus. And if that's the case, I better know who he is. And then he said, you took that Jesus. You, wicked men, took that Jesus that is the great I am. And you, with your wicked hands, you crucified. And instantly they were pricked. I want to tell you why that doesn't happen in here is because you say, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. They did it. I didn't touch him. Oh. John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. I want to remind you what they did to Jesus. During a flogging, A victim is tied to a post, leaving his back utterly exposed. The Romans used a whip called a flagrum. It consisted of small pieces of bone and metal attached to a number of leather strands. And let me just say, don't get distracted by any uh, media that you see up here. It's coming, I think. I think there there should be a yellow dot that says go to the next picture. And the next picture is not that one. It's that one. Thank you. I hope you don't get distracted by any images you're going to see from here on out. Because Mel Gibson tried to depict what went on in a crucifixion. But Hollywood can't even get it. We have no idea how horrible what happened on that day. We have no idea the core of conviction. But it happened when they realized what they had done to Jesus Christ. They used a whip. 
Pieces of metal and bone were attached to leather strands. The number of stripes are not recorded in the gospel, but we know the number of blows in the Jewish law was set in Deuteronomy 25 at 40, but later was reduced to 39 to prevent excessive blows by, by counting error. In other words, if they lost track, don't go to 40, stop at 39. A victim was usually died from the beating. In fact, 39 stripes, they say the reason they settled on 39 is because the 40th would bring them to death. 39, the word means one from death in that, in that old law. The Roman law did not put any limits on the number of blows given. So we don't have a record. We only know what the law said they could do. But the Romans didn't have that law. But during that flogging, the skin was stripped from the back of Jesus, exposing a bloody mass of muscle and bone. One uh, theologian said his back was like hamburger. Extreme blood loss occurred from this beating, weakening the victim, perhaps to the very point of unconsciousness. Matthew 27, 28, and they stripped him, put on him a, ro- a scarlet robe, and when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And a reed in his right hand, they bowed in mockery and said unto him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took a reed and smote him on the head. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Anybody hearing what I'm saying? Unlike the traditional crown, which is depicted as we see it with an open ring, the actual Roman crown of thorns covered their entire scalp. The thorn would be have thorns one to two inches in length. The gospels state that the Roman soldiers continue to beat Jesus on the head and the blows would drive those thorns into the scalp, one of the most vascular areas of the body. Can you imagine the blood that began to pour down his body, his forehead? forehead was bleeding. It caused severe bleeding. I want you to notice also in Isaiah 50 verse 6, the, the prophet says of the coming Messiah, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from the mocking and from the spitting. I want you to recognize what they did to Jesus. The severity of the beating is not detailed in the Gospels. However, in the book of Isaiah, it suggests that the Romans pulled out his beard by the handfuls. In Isaiah 52 it says many were astonished at him. His visage or his physical appearance was so marred more than any man and his form more than any of the sons of men. It's also mentioned that Jesus was beaten so severely that his form did not look like even a man or a human being. The literal translation says this so marred from the form of a man was his aspect that his appearance was not as that of the son of man in other words people were appalled they didn't even want to look at him I want you to remember what was done to Jesus Christ and if he is who he says he is oh the danger of doing this to Jesus Christ From there, Jesus walked on a narrow street of stone. The distance was about 650 yards. Today, it's not like it was then. In that day, it's surrounded by markets. There were crowded streets there. He was led right through the crowded streets, carrying the the, the crossbar of the cross across his shoulders. That crossbar weighed between 80 and 100 pounds, surrounded by Roman soldiers. One of those soldiers would be carrying a side that lists his crime 
Oh, his crime, king of the Jews, that was his crime. And when he falls under the heavy crossbar over his shoulders, this may have led, they say, to a heart contusion, predisposing his heart to rupture when he's on the cross. I need to remind you also of what happened when they nailed him to that cross. The prophet, a psalmist in Psalms 22 says, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. Jesus was led to Calvary. This, this crucifixion was originated with the Persians and passed to those of Carthage but the Romans perfected it as a method of execution they loved it because it caused the maximum pain and the maximum amount of suffering over time the site is supposed purposely chosen outside the city walls. Nobody could be crucified in the city of Jerusalem because of sanitary reasons. Take him outside the city. It's going to be a bloody mess. It's going to be human, human, uh, human liquid and human. Uh, 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 the, his body is is get, losing all uh, of what constitutes a human body. He's nailed to that cross and he's bleeding on that cross and the Jews wanted it to happen outside the city because it was going to be such a mess. He's nailed to that crossbar that he's been carrying. The nails would have been driven through the small bones in the wrist. Otherwise his body weight would not be supported had he been nailed by the palms. So all of his body weight is hanging on his wrist and then they pull his feet up and twist his knees in a lateral position and they nail his feet to that cross he's literally twisted there and there he hangs Psalms twenty two fourteen. I am poured out like water all my bones are out of joint my heart has turned to wax it has melted within me my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth you lay me in the dust of death he says from the severe beatings, Jesus has already experienced an extreme loss of blood. He is now dehydrated. He has little or no strength left. Well, on the cross, it's a tremendous strain on the wrist and arms and shoulders. This can result in the dislocation of his shoulders and his elbows. The arms are held up and outward holding the ribcage in a fixed position that makes it nearly impossible to exhale. That means it's impossible to take a full breath. In other words, you just get a little breath every once in a while. The breath is short. And this may explain why those seven sayings on the cross, they're not very long because he, he can't get his breath. And as time passes, his arms begin to, his muscles begin to shake and tremble and cramp. And, and he's, he's pushed up on his feet so he can breathe. But before long, his legs begin to cramp and he can't hold that position and then he slides back down and his lungs are pulled his rib cage is pulled up and he's, he's hanging there again and suppose he gets a little more strength he rises back up and he grasps another breath and he falls back down Matthew 27 about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice my God my God why hast thou 
forsaken me. For the first time ever, Jesus does not address God as his father. The sin of the world is upon him, and now he is completely forsaken. My God! Forsaken for who? Forsaken for you and for me. I want to remind everybody sitting in this room, it was your sin and my sin that put him on that cross. Oh, I, 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 it, it's almost too much for words. And I know you've heard it so many times. You, you probably can check out at this point if you're not careful. But I pray you stay with me right now. Jesus uttered a voice. His last saying, I thirst. I thirst. He's dehydrated. He's offered two drinks. Everybody say two drinks. The first one he refuses. It's drugs mixed with wine. It's wine with myrrh in it. It's essentially a painkiller, a sedative. He wants to be in his right mind. He said, no, I don't need any sedative. Is he in pain? Oh, absolutely in pain. Excruciating pain. But he said, I want to experience the death for every man. I want to experience the weight of sin for every man. The second drink he accepts just before he dies. It's wine vinegar. Wine vinegar is produced by the fermentation which is made of grape juice and yeast. The word means that which is soured from the Hebrew term that which is leavened. Now you must, be, you must remember that yeast and leaven in biblical terms is a symbol of sin. And when Jesus tasted this drink, it was symbolic of him taking in the leaven of sin. The sins of the world. Your sins and my sins into his body and the Bible said when he received this he cried it is finished what happens to a man during a crucifixion he doesn't die because of the nails in his his hands and feet he doesn't die there's tremendous blood loss yes but he dies of suffocation he suffocated slowly his lungs begin to collapse because of the shallow breathing. Decreased oxygen, increased carbon dioxide cause acidic conditions in his tissues. The fluids begin to fill up in his lungs. His heart becomes stressed and begins to beat faster and faster and faster. It eventually fails. He is suffocating. To get a breath, he's forced to raise up on his feet. And then his feet cramp. He goes back down. The pain is unbearable. And again, Jesus collapses. Jesus alternates between lifting and the pain sagging back eventually. He becomes too exhausted to raise up again. He may lapse in and out of consciousness, but he's, he can't even get his breath. He suffocates to death. That's not all that happened there. Psalms 22, verse 12. I want you to hear me now. They're coming to the music. I want you to hear me now. How many know that there are times you're in a spiritual battle? Try to come to church, try to worship, try to lift your hands. I mean, no, sometimes the enemy tries to fight you and worship. Oh, that's what's happening on the cross. Not even, the things, what, we, don't, I don't need the scripture. I just need the picture. Just leave the picture up there. Leave the pictures. No scriptures. Just leave the pictures. There he is. There he is. And we see what's happening externally. We're seeing what's happening to his body. But the Bible tells us what's happening that we can't see. What can't we see here in this little Hollywood picture? What is it that we don't see? The writer of Psalm says, don't ever mistake in yourself, but on Calvary, something else was happening. Many bulls surround me. The strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. 
roaring lions tearing their prey upon their mouths wide against me. Did you hear that? Bashan was an area east of the Jordan River, famous for its fertility. Cattle were raised there. They say that grew to enormous sizes. Because of the size of these cattle, the people believed that they were filled with demonic spirits and they worshiped those cattle, those cattle as they would worship Baal. Satan is described as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. These verses are describing the spiritual activity that was swirling around that cross. Can you imagine? The Bible says, had they known who he was... You didn't hear me. It says if the spirit world would have known who he was, they would have never let this happen. So they are gleeful. They are happy. They are swirling around him, laughing at him while he's dying for you. Understand the magnitude of what is going on here. And I need to say it so that you will squarely understand it. It was your sin. That put him there. And until you see that. Yeah. You'll keep playing with immorality. Playing with drugs. playing. You'll never repent. Until you see. My sin did that. To Jesus Christ. And until I know who he is. And what my sin did to him. It's like the man who said to the preacher, Preacher, you don't believe what you're telling me. And the preacher said, What do you mean? And he said, If I believed what you're telling me is true, I would crawl all the way around the world on broken glass just to tell one person. One person. One. That's what your sin did. Now, I know you think, Well, he died for the whole world. But listen. Those people on the day of Pentecost when Peter said, you crucified him, you crucified him. I want you to turn to your neighbor and look him right in the eye. And I want you to say, you crucified him, you crucified him, you. And until you recognize the blood that's on your hands, you'll never come to an altar and say, Lord, I am so sorry for what I've been doing. No, you're going to think, well, I may do better for a week or two. You know, but he understands. No, you killed him. Your sin killed him on this cross. What have we done to Jesus? Hebrews 6 says, listen, listen. It's impossible. Once you come to know what you know, if you fall away, to renew you again to repentance. You know why? Because you have crucified afresh. You've done it to him again. Again. He did it 2,000 years ago. Blake, but he says, if you know this and you keep doing what you're doing, you keep crucifying him over and over. I wonder why people don't want to repent. It shocks me that that wouldn't cause people to say, my God, I'm sorry. I'm going to quit doing what I'm doing. If that's what sin does, I'm going to stop it. Repent. You'll never repent until you see who Jesus is and what you did to him. And I know right now, I'm well aware 
I'm walking in the spirit right now and I'm well aware that the devil's trying to convince you that this doesn't make any sense, that you didn't do that. I want to tell you something. You'll never repent until you recognize who Jesus is and what your sin did to him. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you right now, Brennan, if I, if I keep that picture right there, Rob, in my head and I'm addicted to alcohol, the next time I see a glass of strong drink or beer or drive past the, the, the liquor store, you know what? If you realize what that's done to Jesus, it'll make you sick to your stomach. You won't say, well, I can't help myself. Oh, no. No, you need to understand what you've done to Jesus. Oh, I just like getting high. I just like being intoxicated. The Bible says our drunkards are going to have their place in the lake of fire. It's going to happen. Is it okay to preach against sin in this church? That's right. You know why? Because that's what sin did to Jesus right there. You know what? You'll never be convicted. You'll never come. I don't understand how people can. Now, I know they don't have to cry like I cry. But I don't understand people that feel godly sorrow and they have no remorse. Done horrible things and no remorse. No, I'm sorry. Just, well, I'm just going to go to church and I'll fix it. No. Peter said, they said, what have we done to Jesus? And Peter said, well, if you want to get this fixed, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to recognize what you've done and you need to repent. You say, God, I'm sorry, and I'm never, never, ever going to crucify you again. Never. I'm sorry for what my sin did to you. I'm thankful. But the first feeling is, Lord, forgive me. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to begin to pray right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray across this congregation. I believe the Holy Ghost is here, Lord. Lord, I... I thank you for your word. I thank you for speaking to me, to speak to this church about what it takes to really be saved. It's not about just going to church and getting down in some water for a few seconds and, and just going to church. No, Lord, we must repent or we're going to perish. Lord, I pray a spirit of repentance would go across this congregation today in the name of Jesus. This is the very basis of repentance unless a sinner is pierced in his heart with his guilt. You know, I've heard people say, uh, you just make me feel bad. Well, no, don't, don't think that's me. No, it's not me. That's the Spirit of the Lord. Is anybody hearing me now? I said that's the Spirit of the Lord. It's called conviction. Well, I don't want to go there because I'll feel bad. Well, you know what? If you're a sinner, you need to feel bad because that's what you did to Jesus right there. Your sin nailed him to the cross and you need to never forget it all the guilt of their unbelief and rejection of Jesus was uncovered and Peter said look what you've done to the man God sent you as your savior look at what you've done to Jesus and they were pricked in their hearts after the words of Peter these men were utterly crushed their conscience was so smitten they could not even fend off the blows the gospel had landed and they had stood against God in their treatment of Jesus Christ look what you've done to Jesus Peter said, repent. Everybody say, repent. Everybody say, repent. Hey, look at me right now. We're going to open this altar in just a minute for anybody who wants to repent. But I want you to know what repentance is. Repentance is not saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to try to do better, God. Try to do better. 
I'm coming just, you know, I'm going to give it another week, Brother Kyle, Sister Nicole. I'm going to go another week. I'm going to try to try to stay clean this week. Do you know the word repent means change of heart? So if you're not ready to change your heart, don't come up here and play with repentance. I'm just going to tell you the way it is. If you're not ready to repent, don't play with repentance. That's what you're playing with right there. Not me, not this church. But if you're not ready to change your heart, don't tell me you're repenting. That's right. A change of heart. The word repent. Now, in our, in our, it's a military term. In our, in our military, they say about face. I can't do it. They put their foot around, spin around. Man, they can do it on a dime. But you know, in English culture, in, in England, it, the word they still use is repent. It means to turn around. It means to quit going the direction you're going. The word literally means their entire moral state undergoes a change. It doesn't happen at baptism. It happens at repentance. They say, I'm not going to live the way I've been living. I refuse to live that way anymore. They, oh, well, I need the Holy Ghost to know. Repentance says it's an act of my will. I am not going to do that anymore. Yeah. Well, when God fills me, I'll, I'll live above that. No, when you repent, you'll say, I ain't touching that anymore. I'm not living that way anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not talking like that anymore. I'm not treating people like that anymore. I am going to have an, uh, I'm going to undergo an entirely different moral change in my life. And I want to tell you, the person that says, I'm not, I'm not going down that road of sin anymore. I'm a different man. Not talking like that, not looking at that website, not saying that anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. I want to tell you what, when you baptize that man, I want to say something, when you baptize that man, I don't know about you, but I'm weary of people repenting or so repenting and not getting the Holy Ghost. I'm weary of people getting baptized and not getting the Holy Ghost. Well, maybe we've skipped the very first ingredient. Maybe we've told people the Holy Ghost is so real that they just want that and they don't, they don't understand. But you've got to repent. You've got to say, Lord, I'm not living that way anymore. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh I'm not going to that store anymore and buying that stuff. I know where the crack house is, but I'm not going there anymore. I'm going to disassociate with those people that would tempt me to drive away and crucify him again. Oh, oh somebody clap your hands to the Lord. So, repentance is an entire moral change. It says, I'm not. You must repent. You must be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But I don't want you to ever mistake that you walk in this church and you sit here for a few minutes and you say, oh, I want to be baptized. You're not ready to be baptized. Until you recognize what you've done to Jesus, you stay out of that water. 
I'm going to say it is all right. I'm going to say it again. Until you're ready to serve God, don't climb in that baptistry tank. And I'm not the one who decides that. Now, I can discern that, but you're the one that needs to understand, am I ready to serve God? Am I ready to walk it the way it ought to be walked? Am I ready to serve the Lord with all my heart? Because the Bible says if you repent and you're baptized, what? You shall. You know why? Because you've got a made-up mind. Peter said it, repent. Change your entire moral state. It'll undergo an entire change. And you know what baptism is? It's a pledge. Your recognition of his lordship. I'm not going to live that way anymore. And you are my Lord. And I want to tell you, baptism is useless if there has not been repentance. Oh, I want you to stand right now. And I want you to just begin to pray. I'm following after the Lord right now. I just, just want the Lord to have his way. Come on, let's pray the Holy Ghost to move right now. In Jesus' name. I want to tell you right now, there's men in this room that need to repent. There's an attitude that's got a hold of you that you need to repent. It's going to send you to hell if you don't repent. There are men in this room that's, that's sinful, and you know it, and you need to repent today. You drove him to that cross. Your sin nailed him there. And until you realize what you've done to Jesus, you'll never be convicted over it. You need to feel sorry for what you've done. You need to recognize what you did to Jesus because you're in danger of doing it over and over if you come out of that and then keep doing it. The apostle promised those who repent and are baptized, he promises them your sins will be remitted and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So Peter presses them for an immediate decision. He says, he says to them, repent, be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He says, now's the time to do it. Don't wait any longer. It's time to get your life straightened out. And, and th- this is no point where they say, you know what, we're going to try to do better this week. No, Peter says, now's the time to repent and get your life straightened out. And I want to tell you, today's the day. What have we done to Jesus? Your sin put him there and mine put him there. The altar's open now for anybody that wants to repent. And this doesn't mean apostolic shouldn't be here. No, this means everybody in this room that knows there's a part of your heart that nailed him to that cross. You want to come right now and say, Lord, forgive me. And I'm not asking you to do it so that I can put a check mark on it. I'm asking you to do it for your own heart right now. Lord, I'm coming to repent. I'm praying that everybody in this room makes their way to an altar and says, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Come on. Come on. Even if you've already been baptized, it's good for you to repent today. Lord, forgive me. What have I done? You thought I was worth saving.